This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. Taking a look at the issues surrounding the health and well-being of our LGBTIQ communities, this is Well, 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 brought to you every week by Thorn Harbour Health. I'm Cal Hawk. I'm the Communications Policy Manager at Thorn Harbour Health, as well as one of the producers and presenters of our weekly radio show on Joy 94.9, Well, Well, Well. I'll be moderating this online forum this evening. And joining us from, I believe, Gadigal country of the Eora Nation will be Dr. Vincent Cornelies. Um, Vincent is a specialist in sexual health medicine and manager of the medical unit at Curtin Road Center in Kings Cross, Sydney. Vincent's research focuses on health epidemi- sexual health epidemiology with an aim of improving the understanding of the current epidemics of sexually transmitted infections in order to develop more effective interventions. Now, tonight, uh, Vincent is joining us to unpack some of the many questions we've received from the community about the monkeypox virus, or MPXV. Now, the current global outbreak of monkeypox really got underway in May of this year, and a number of resources have been released on the basics. Um, We're going to zip through some of the basics. And so, Vincent, if it's all right by you, um, we were talking amongst the team this morning. This is kind of like a previously on monkeypox uh, 60 seconds. And you can correct me if I get any of these details wrong. Is that all right? Okay, cool. Yes, it's me. Okay, so in brief, monkeypox is a viral infection caused by the monkeypox virus. Previous to May of this year, occurrence of monkeypox was rare outside of Central and West Africa. Typically a relatively mild infection, initial symptoms were similar to like the flu before progressing to a rash or, rash or lesions, particularly on the hands, face, and legs. And it was usually a self-limiting infection that the body would clear itself within a few weeks. Transmission was largely thought to be via skin-to-skin contact with lesions through prolonged face-to-face contact via respiratory droplets in contact with clothing, bedding, or uh, used by someone with the infection. However, things have evolved, and now the CDC reports that there are now more than 44,000 cases around the world. 98% of those cases in this kind of more recent outbreak have been amongst men who have sex with men. And presentations of lesions have varied from those earlier outbreaks, and we're seeing a lot of presentations in the mouth, genitals, and anal region. And while the majority of those cases still continue to be relatively mild infections, 10% of those are moderate to severe. And in very rare instances, I think by last count, around five deaths have actually occurred globally associated with monkeypox. Um, And those are in countries where the virus was not endemic previously. We do have a lot of basics um, on monkeypox that you, if you want to get up to date on that, we are updating our website. But if you head to the Thorn Harbor website, uh, thornharbor.org slash monkeypox, we have a lot of those basics. Um, But tonight, we really want to focus on where we're at right now. Um, So... Yeah, we want to kind of dive right into where we're at. We do have vaccination options. I haven't mentioned those yet, and I want to unpack those with you, Vincent. But I guess, first of all, feel free to correct any of those details. I may not have gotten quite right. But what to you stands out as being the real difference in this outbreak, as opposed to our kind of historic understanding of monkeypox prior to this? Yeah, Cal, look, uh, great summary, first up. Um, you got everything right. The, the big difference is, and just, I guess, to paraphrase some of what you've said, is that, um, as we know, for decades, we've had um, 
MPOX or uh, MPXV or monkeypox in what's been termed endemic countries in Central and Western Africa. Um, it's exactly the same, the, the transmission dynamics you've described. Uh, the big difference with the current outbreak, which started sort of in Western Europe and um, the US and then Canada, is that, um, as you said, this is very much affecting a specific population in those countries, and that's um, gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men. And um, there's been a lot of argument in the health sector around uh, whether this is sexually transmitted or whether this is transmitted through co close contact or transmitted through respiratory, respiratory droplets. Um, I think the, the debate is currently being settled. And I think most people are now on the same page in terms of treating this as a uh, an epidemic of sexual transmission. Um, there's a few reasons for this. Uh, the main reason being that, as you pointed out, 98% of cases are amongst gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men. Um, and if there was a route other than sexual transmission, we would have expected to see transmission beyond that community. Um, for example, if close contact transmission was a significant driver, then you would have expected significant transmission, for example, at dance events that are also attended by people other than gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men. Um, or uh, if you don't mind, I'll make change that term just for tonight to uh, gay, plus uh, communities, um, just to save the words. Um, so, and we haven't seen that. We haven't seen big outbreaks at dance events. And I think particularly in the context of having just come through um, Pride season in the Northern Hemisphere, where there have been massive amounts of large scale events, and yet we're not seeing an outbreak spreading beyond the gay community. I think we can be fairly certain that um, transmission is through sexual transmission. If you then add to that, that um, most lesions, skin lesions that we see are either on the genitals or the uh, in or around the anus or in and around the mouth, again, uh, the parts of the body that are used for sex, that again adds to that picture of this being sexually transmitted. Um, and finally, you know, the, the question around respiratory droplets was sort of heavy on people's minds because um, that raises the stakes in terms of uh, rapidity of transmission and sort of there's there's the broadness of transmission. And again, we haven't seen that. We've and initially during this outbreak in Australia, all of the cases were imported, as in they're all occurring in people who acquired MPOX overseas and then came back to Australia and then were diagnosed when they arrived here. Um, all those people came on long plane flights. They all spent lots of hours in very close contact with lots of other people sharing little plane toilets and no one else on the planes got MPOX. Um, so I think, you know, I'm keen to put the baby to bed and say, look, we can stop worrying about uh, spreads through respiratory droplets and other forms of close contact and perhaps even fomites, fomite transmission being uh, transmission by contaminating surfaces and then other people who touch those surfaces um, picking up the infection. I think we can sort of um, put the baby the baby to bed with all of that and say, look, this is currently sexually transmitted in this particular outbreak. Um, that's not to say that it can't <clears throat> that it can't possibly be transmitted through other circumstances, but that's not what we're currently seeing. And we need to focus on how do we uh, find ways for people to stay safe, to um, uh, be able to protect themselves and protect the people um, they have sex with. Um, yeah.
Sorry, I think I hope that answered your question. It was oh, look, it, it's it has answered a few questions and it has triggered a lot more. And so we're going to kind of try to tackle some of those along the way. But yeah, I think 100%. Basically, what we've what to summarize that is that if you if you look at basically how this outbreak has happened, it's kind of undeniable at this point that it seems to be moving exclusively through sexual networks. Yeah. Um, and beyond kind of the others, and I guess for us as a community organization, we're kind of prioritizing, we now are, have the challenge of trying to prioritize how to figure out how to reduce that risk um, in that way. And by kind of acknowledging those other ways is all well and good, but we kind of need to focus on where the risk is highest. Um, Definitely. So with that in mind, um, oh, and actually one thing I did want to ask you, uh, my understanding is there is some research around the presence of the virus in seminal fluid. Is that right? That's correct. And yes, we've known so that for is. a little while. Do you, do you want me to start talking about that? Because it's yeah, slightly, no, let's it's a, talk about it. It's a slight, let's go with it. It's a slightly different topic, but it's related. It's very much related. So, um, how do you transmit monkeypox? And I think we perhaps should talk about this uh, a bit more broadly first. So, if um, and at some point we need to talk, touch on the symptoms of monkeypox as well, because this is related. But we've got time, right? So, how do you transmit monkeypox? So, if you have lesions, skin lesions, monkeypox skin lesions, um, which um, if you need to see pictures, they're easy to Google currently because there's lots of examples online. But if you have lesions, then those lesions contain material that contains the virus. So direct contact with those lesions um, onto uh, mucosal skin. So that's, for example, genital skin, skin uh, of the mouth, including the lips and the skin in the anal area. So like your actual butthole. Um, that has contains skin and that's called mucosal skin, which is different from the skin on the outside of your body. It's it's not as sort of sturdy and not as uh, impenetrable as, um, sorry, yeah, so this, the skin on the rest of your body is much more impenetrable. Anyway, getting back to it. So if you've got lesions, skin lesions with uh, MPOX, if you get that material that contains the virus and put that into contact with other mucosal skin, so again, genitals, anus, mouth, or if you rub it on a cut in uh, skin that covers the rest of your body, then it can transmit that way. Now, what we've also, so that's from those lesions directly. And then to get to your point, uh, what we've also found is that if someone has monkeypox, then their semen will contain monkeypox virus, which again highlights that this is likely to be a sexually transmitted epidemic. Um, so again, semen contains mpox. Um, if you are currently experiencing um, the illness of having monkeypox. Now, what to add to that, so you can transmit it through exposure to skin lesions, you can transmit it to, uh, through exposure to semen or probably pre-cum, uh, vaginal fluids, saliva, any really any sort of bodily fluid during an active infection. Now, once you've recovered from an infection, which... You, as you pointed out, it may take a couple of weeks. It might be two weeks, might be three weeks, might be four weeks. I've heard of a couple of cases of taking five weeks, um, but I think the consensus is that generally it will take about three weeks for people to recover. And by recover, we mean that the skin lesions have healed. So the scabs that are formed on the skin lesions have had time to heal and they've fallen off by themselves and the underlying skin has regenerated, forming normal, healthy skin, possibly with some loss of pigmentation. Um, so when you've recovered and all the skin lesions have healed, um, the seat, your semen can still contain monkeypox for possibly eight, possibly 12 weeks after that. And the reason for that, and this has been found, there was a study in Italy that looked at this and they looked at, um, they tested, 
uh, guy's semen after they'd recovered from monkeypox and they found monkeypox virus in there, um, which of course raises the risk that you could still transmit monkeypox by exposing other people to your semen after you've recovered from the infection. Um, so, and the reason for that is probably, and it's getting a little bit technical, a little bit scientific, but the reason is probably that the testicles are kind of separated off from the rest of your immune system. And there's a good reason for that because your testicles are full of semen and your semen is uh, are cells that are a bit, uh, the little swimmers are little cells that are a bit different from the other cells in your body. So your immune system could recognize those as not being your own tissue and then attack them and resulting in um, infertility. So in order to stop that happening, your testes are formed in a way that stops the immune system from getting in there um, to protect the semen. What that unfortunately also means is that if you've got virus in there, your immune system can't get into your testicles to clear the virus out. So that's probably why for a further eight to 12 weeks, you might have a monkeypox virus in your semen. I think condoms can play a role. Condoms are not going to be 100% protective against monkeypox virus. I think that's really important to point out. I don't, um, yeah, I think I, given the, you know, that you might be able to transmit it through saliva, you might be able to transmit it through pre-cum, you know, there's lots of um, ways that you can have sex. And I, I think we have to be careful to not say that condoms are going to be uh, massively effective at reducing the risk of monkeypox. What they will be, there's a couple of scenarios that I've thought of in which they will be effective. One is if you want to avoid getting monkeypox up your bum, which is really uncomfortable. Uh, so monkeypox lesions are very painful or can be very painful. And as you can imagine, if you have a few monkeypox lesions up your bum, that causes um, significant discomfort and makes it difficult for you to pass uh, bowel motions. Um, and that's one of the tricky scenarios that we deal with uh, clinically when we're trying to assist people uh, in managing their monkeypox infection. So if you want to avoid reducing your risk of getting monkeypox up your bum, then it's probably, and if you uh, if you like bottoming, um, then it's probably a good idea to, for at least temporarily, start using condoms for receptive anal sex or for bottoming, just to reduce that risk. Um, it, it might not reduce your risk of getting monkeypox overall, but it might change the, the location where you get your monkeypox, which might significantly change your experience of monkeypox infection. Now, I am mindful too that a lot of people have asked questions around how can I get the vaccine? How can I, um, you know, when is gonna, more of it going to be available? And I realize you do not work for you know, in that capacity around that. Yeah, I'm in a different state, but yes. Yeah. Um, but so I, we won't be kind of delving into that. I will address that sort of at the very end of this, but I guess when I talk about the vaccine at the moment, we're hearing around, you know, that the, there's a, the Genios vaccine or Imivune vaccine, depending on where you are in the world, when you're getting it, can you explain before we talk into the variations of how it's being put out there, what that's been approved for, how that vaccine typically works? Sure. So the, the MVABN vaccine, or one of the brand names that you mentioned, um, is a what we call a third-generation vaccinia vaccine. So what that means is it contains a virus called vaccinia virus, um, which uh, is a virus that doesn't normally transmit to humans. Um, but the, it's a third generation, which and the big difference between this third generation vaccine from the previous second generation vaccine is that this virus that we use now as part of the vaccine cannot replicate inside the human body. So it's not able to replicate, which means that it's very safe because it can't cause an infection inside the person it was given to, and it can't be transmitted to another person, which the previous vaccine could. 
So the previous vaccine came with a lot of problems, a lot of uh, potential side effects and complications, including things like myocarditis, eye infections, uh, overwhelming sort of skin infections. This new vaccine doesn't come with any of those risks. It was approved for uh, prevention of smallpox, um, and um, many countries around the world um, were looking at, uh, or some of the stock around the world um, that was being kept with this vaccine was as a bio warfare prevention strategy, you know, in the case of a, a bio attack using smallpox virus. Um, as you said at the start, or I think I said at the start, monkeypox is closely related to smallpox virus. It's an orthopox virus. Um, so we're using a smallpox vaccine or a vaccine that's been developed to prevent smallpox to now prevent monkeypox. Um, it works by, again, it's a it's a, an injection that goes under the skin. So the, the licensed route of administration is uh, as a subcutaneous injection. So it goes through the skin into the fat layers under the skin. Um, and then um, that's repeated at least 28 days later. So it's a two-dose course. Um, if people get it more than 28 days later, that's fine. Uh, it's just that the minimum interval is 28 days. Um, and then once you've completed the full course, then um, hopefully you have adequate protection. Uh, the reason I say hopefully is that we haven't previously had the opportunity to study the clinical effectiveness of this vaccine for monkeypox prevention because we haven't had a scenario where we've had significant numbers of monkeypox in the community to be able to work out whether people are being protected with this vaccine. And that work is currently ongoing. So there's certainly a lot of work looking at how effective is this vaccine clinically. What we do know is that this vaccine produces a significant antibody response. Um, so we know that if it's injected in people um, over a period of about two to four weeks, they'll start to produce antibody levels to the vaccinia virus, which should be protective against monkeypox virus. Um, now, the and importantly, the antibody response is slightly different for people who are living with HIV versus people who are not living with HIV. Um, so, people who are so firstly, for people who are not living with HIV, if they get this vaccine, they uh, can expect a, signif a significant antibody level after about two weeks. So, about thirty percent of people will have a what is thought to be protective antibody level after two weeks. And um, about 65 or so percent of people will have a protective antibody level after four weeks or 28 days. And then, of course, the idea is that beyond that, you then get a second dose, and that second dose will probably take you up to that, up to a point where about 96 to 98 percent of people will have protective antibody levels, which we presume translate to clinical protection. That's for people who are not living with HIV. For people living with HIV, they also eventually get to that exact same protection level, it just takes longer. So they don't have as a significant a response to the first dose generally. Um, and then um, they have a second dose. And then um, eventually, you know, after say 42 days, they should be at the same level of protection. And I think this is really important for people to know that if you get the monkeypox vaccine, which I hope all of you will have access to in the near future, um, then you're not immediately protected. So the first dose will give you some protection after two to four weeks, and then the second dose will take you up to sort of maximal protection. With that in mind, you did touch on one thing there around when you get the vaccine, um, do we feel like some people are, where they're gonna experience soreness or a lump or whatever on the site of injection? Um, and what can folks expect and how long does that take? Yeah, sure. Um, so um, most people go, 
a fine. Uh, sorry, I forgot what the actual percentages were. Um, but um, soreness is, doesn't tend to be a major issue. It's a subcutaneous injection rather than an intramuscular injection. So it doesn't go into your muscles. So it's less likely to produce local soreness. Um, side effects or so general side effects um, include things like feeling tired, maybe a fever, headachey. Um, and that usually occurs the following day and usually doesn't last more than a day. I think there have been there have been a few cases of it lasting up to a week of people just not having the, their normal energy levels. Um, but that's really about it. There was concern um, about myocarditis. So as I pointed out, the second generation vaccine that was previously used had a risk of myocarditis. So there was some uncertainty about whether this vaccine would run the risk of myocarditis. And just for people who might not know, myocarditis is inflammation of the heart muscle. Now, the reason this is important is that this is a known side effect of COVID vaccines. And we've had a few people in our community who've experienced myocarditis as a result of the COVID vaccine. So part of the concern was, you know, if you've had myocarditis from a COVID vaccine, is it safe for you to have a monkeypox vaccine? Now, this is so we ran a, a vaccine hub here in Sydney where we um, vaccinated 250 to 270 people a day with uh, with the um, NBABN vaccine. Um, and that was one of the conversations we were having with people when they were coming in. They're checking have they had myocarditis before or have they had a COVID vaccine before. To cut a long story short, it doesn't actually seem to be a significant issue. So when they ran the licensing trials for this vaccine, they um, vaccinated about 9,000 people to check for side effects, and there was not a single case of myocarditis. There was one person who possibly developed pericarditis, which is inflammation of the membrane around the heart, but it was just a possible diagnosis, so not anything significant. So my advice to people has been, as long as you fully, if you've had myocarditis from, for example, the COVID vaccine, as long as you're fully recovered from that and have no ongoing symptoms, you're safe to get the uh, MVABN or monkeypox vaccine. We are hearing around the CDC and also in the UK, they're using a slightly different um, way of applying the vaccine. Can you, can you explain how that's yeah. different and do, are we going to see a difference in efficacy? Um, so really important questions. Um, so just as a bit of background, so this is all come about because we don't have enough vaccine, right? The whole world doesn't have enough vaccine. There's one company in the world that makes this vaccine and they haven't made enough of it. So we're all scrounging around trying to work out how are we going to provide enough vaccine to the communities that need it. Um, and so one of the ideas that came up was we can change the way that we give the vaccine. So as I said before, the, the standard and the licensed method of giving the vaccine is, as a subcutaneous injection under the skin, there is an alternative way to give the vaccine and that's into the skin. So within the skin layer, so very superficial, with a teeny tiny needle, and then you inject a small amount of vaccine just under the skin so it forms a little blister under, on, rather than going underneath the skin. Um, and if you do that, you only need a fifth of the volume of the vaccine, which means you can vaccinate five times as many people. So it's a really important question because it means that we all of a sudden have five times as much vaccine to give out when we have a limited supply. Now, this is, of course, this is not what the vaccine was licensed for, but there were there was a trial looking at the what we call immunogenicity of the vaccine, and they compared uh, with this vaccine, they compared subcutaneous dosing with intradermal dosing at a fifth of the dose and found a similar antibody response. So it looks like it's just as effective. And um, the theoretical basis underneath, sort of un underlying this, is that 
inside the skin layers rather than underneath the skin inside the skin layers there are lots of immune cells including cells called antigen presenting cells and this is a bit technical but basically they have a really important role in picking up um uh sort of foreign bodies of foreign materials and infections and presenting those things to the immune system in order to mount an immune response so as you can imagine if you inject a vaccine into that situation where there's lots of immune cells inside the skin of course, you're more likely to get a stronger immune response to a small vaccine dose. So the thinking is, if we do this, we can vaccinate five times as many people and get the same immune response in those people as we would have got with the standard dosing. Well, considering a lot of folks who are already on this call are aware that we have a incredibly low amount of the vaccine here in Australia, we might see that as a development, hopefully, in the near future. Um, and so if folks do hear about that, that shouldn't be alarmed. It sounds like all the evidence points to the fact that this is going to be just as effective. It's just kind of a different, it sounds like a more technical application of so, the vaccine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it, it does present some workforce challenges in, in that there aren't a lot of nurses who are trained in intradermal vaccine uh, administration. So that's, this is, something that's very live at the moment um, and very uh, strongly considered at government levels to work out, you know, are we going to do this? Are we going to do this with the next supply of vaccine when it becomes available, probably in mid to late September? Um, and if so, how are we going to get the workforce ready to be able to administer the vaccine in this way? So I wouldn't be surprised. I, I can't speak for government, but I wouldn't be surprised if this is the way we end up going in September. A lot of people, as you've mentioned, it's a two-shot vaccination, but a lot of people have been successful in getting their first shot and they might be successful in getting it in sort of the days and weeks ahead. How important is it around making sure that second shots get in arms? When does that become particularly vital? Like you said, a lot of people have to wait 28 days anyhow is there any strategy we've seen in Canada and the U.S. that they're kind of just focused on getting one shot? And some people have even been told, especially if they're not HIV positive, that, you know, just wait to get your second shot until there's more available. Yeah. So I guess a couple of points to consider um, from an epidemiological uh, standpoint, if you're looking at the population and you're trying to maximize the protection with of that population and you've got limited supply of vaccine, um, and you have a two-shot regimen, two-dose regimen, um, and you know that a, a one-shot gives partial protection and two shots gives full protection, from an epidemiological standpoint, you're probably better off giving one shot to everyone than two shots to half the people. As in, you've got a much better chance of controlling spread if you give one shot to everyone. So just keep that in mind. Um, Having said that, I'm still keen for everyone to get two shots, particularly um, keeping in mind that World Pride is coming to Sydney in March next year. And I think, um, and this is very much on government radar as well, that we really need to do everything we can to make sure that um, our community is as best protected as possible before March next year. And that means getting two shots into people's arms and getting that first shot and then second shot in well before March. because their immune system needs time to form antibodies to be protected by the time World Pride comes around. Vincent, thank you so much for your time tonight. Everyone, thank you for attending. And as we said, we'll make the recording hopefully available before the weekend, but stay uh, tuned into Thorn Harbor socials and the website for updated information as this continues to evolve, in, in, especially around vaccine uh, access here in Victoria and further afield. Thanks for listening to Well, 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 your show for LGBTIQ health and well-being. Presented by Joy Sponsor, Thorn Harbour Health. For more on these topics and much more, check out Thorn Harbour on social media at Thorn Harbour or via the website thornharbour.org.
Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.